Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we are looking at cryptids. What's a cryptid? In essence, it's an animal where there is a lot of stories about it, but there isn't a lot of evidence. It is not officially in the natural history records of animal species. So I'm pretty sure this one has been called the Loch Ness Monster, because that's Probably the most famous cryptid in the world, but it's certainly not the only one. And I'm going to take you on a really weird and unusual journey and how cryptids really have captured the popular imagination. They absolutely are a part of pop culture. And while they are not part of history or natural history, they very much tell you something about the societies that they come from. So let's start with the Loch Ness Monster. Because it's the one everybody's heard of. And if you think about it for a moment, if you're British and you grew up in the 1980s, there was the Nessies cartoon series. There was, in the 1990s, an animated movie. Not an animated movie. The Loch Ness Monster itself was animated, obviously, because it's not real. Spoiler for all of these creatures. None of them are real. I will go through some of the reasoning on why at least some of them definitely can't be real in a bit. I am being a spoil sport. But again, whenever I talk about things like, not history, but spirituality or religion, I get people believe quite strongly about these things. But I am not going to talk about belief. I'm going to talk about the facts on the ground. And the reason why all of these creatures are examples of cryptids is because there's not enough proof. It's fascinating how we've moved into the world of DNA and we haven't found anything that backs up these creatures. But there are lots of weird and wonderful creatures that have existed throughout the history of planet Earth. I digress. Let's get back to it. So, the Loch Ness Monster. There's been movies, there's been TV shows, there's been kids-friendly stuff. There have been endless amounts of jigsaw puzzles, news stories, etc. What triggered this was in the summer of 2023, for some 
unknown reason, in my opinion, there was yet again another search involving hundreds of volunteers looking at various different aspects of Loch Ness in Scotland about trying to find Nessie. And if you don't know about this new story, spoiler alert, they didn't find it because it's not there. But the thing about the Loch Ness Monster is it's a great example of how it's been kidnapped, repurposed, call it what you will, into a bit of pop culture, like I said, movies, etc. The great thing about any of these things is nobody owns the intellectual property rights. This is where something like Jaws is actually from a book. So in that regard, Peter Benchley actually will be earning money from the Jaws movie and so will Steven Spielberg. But a great white shark is not an intellectual property right that you can copyright. So you can make your own movie about sharks. Maybe you change the shark. Maybe you create genetically modified giant tiger sharks. That would be Deep Blue Sea. Not as good as Jaws, but you get the idea. Or, indeed, in the 21st century, there's the Meg and the Meg the Trench. And I'm sure there's going to be Meg 3 num-nums or, or whatever. So, that's why. When you say the Loch Ness Monster, it's cost me nothing to cash in on the already existing awareness of that thing. And so, hopefully, people will go and watch my TV show. Or, indeed buy my newspaper or click on the article online so that we get more views, more potential ad revenue, etc. This is why there's a virtuous circle in the world of cryptids, where it's in nobody's best interest to actually outright say, doesn't exist, unless you're a spoil sport like me, who's got no skin in the game, and just trying to point out the facts of the situation. When it comes to the Loch Ness Monster, it's actually a really good one to start with because it's arguably the oldest one where we got a reference to it. So in case you don't know, Scotland is north of England. It's part of the British Isles. It was its own independent country for many, many centuries with its own distinct culture. And it's pockmarked by mighty mountains and hills and these huge lochs these huge lakes, if you like, and Loch Ness is absolutely gigantic. Now, clearly, it isn't the size of the Great Lakes in North America, because Britain's only small, but it is substantially long and large and deep. So the fact I always like is if you took the whole world's population and shoved them into Loch Ness, the pile of bodies. Why would you do that? That's a, it's a monstrous example, but I guess it's just an example of how big it is. The point is, if you did that, the huge pile of bodies wouldn't reach the surface if it was evenly spread, obviously. So that gives you an idea of what a gigantic volume of water it is. And therefore, if you've got one little boat on Loch Ness trying to look for the monster, well, the monster has far more space to evade than to necessarily be caught on sonar or whatever. So it is a mysterious place. I have been to Loch Ness. There is an amazing castle overlooking it. It's the sort of picture postcard version of Scotland. It's gorgeous. And this idea of a little mystery inside the lake as well just adds that bit of flavor. It is a huge tourist attraction. Even though almost everybody knows that the Loch Ness Monster isn't real, there is literally, again, I'm not making this up, 
a Loch Ness Monster Museum there. Because of course there is. Where else would you put up a museum to the Loch Ness Monster? And yes, I've been. And they do a good job. Rather than just constantly selling that it's real, they are open and honest about the evidence and you get to make the decision, although you then walk out past a statue of a plesiosaur. And if you're thinking of Loch Ness Monster, you're probably thinking of a plesiosaur, one of those dinosaur-era-type creatures, a sauropod, you know, brontosaurus, only with flippers, big long neck, big huge body, only at the end it would be a carnivore rather than herbivore, and yes, it's the stuff of nightmare, and certainly plesiosaurs genuinely existed, except they died out about the same time as the mass extinction of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. So if there's one existing today, no dinosaur would live for millions of years. Maybe they lived for a century, but that is a drop in the bucket between end of dinosaurs and today. We will be coming back to that problem a little bit later on. So the problem is, and this is why there isn't a Loch Ness Monster, is because of population. If there was one today that has been swimming around for a hundred years, well... It had to have come from a mummy and a daddy. And so there should have been, if you extrapolate this back, let's say a thousand years ago or 1500 years ago, Chronicles should have said that the Loch Ness would have been covered in a veritable forest of long-necked creatures as this species existed in Loch Ness and then slowly over the centuries faded away and now we've got the last one. Except, I think you know where this is going, there is no such record. The earliest record we have is quite impressively old. It's from the year 565 AD and is the story of Saint Columba going through the Picts. This is before the Scotty, who are actually Irish raiders. The Scottish aren't indigenous to Scotland. The Picts are. But Saint Columba, while he was travelling in the area. It's actually an unknown area. It doesn't specifically say Loch Ness, but it was clearly near a river or a lake. It was, quote, attacked by a water beast. Well, of course, that could be anything. Maybe he was attacked by a pike whilst crossing a stream. Maybe, for some reason, freakish reason, he was attacked by a shark as he was on a small boat like a coracle or something like that, in which case, if there was by freak occurrence, a great white shark attacking you in a coracle, that's definitely the definition of a water beast, that would be terrifying, and that would be worth noting in an annal. What it doesn't say is describe a plethiosaur-type creature. Indeed, that, if you look at all the other sightings and records leading up to the 1930s, they're all quite different. Sometimes this seems to be a creature that's on land that then heads into the lock. Other times it's only in the lock. Other times it's quite small. Other times it's very large. In other words, people are describing something different and now it's all being put under the same category of Loch Ness Monster. So if I described to you what we would call a cow and then I described to you something 50 years later which we would call nowadays a sheep. Well, both of them are similar. They both live in a field. They both have four legs. They both make strange guttural noises. Describe them like that. You can make anything sound a bit creepy, except we have lots of evidence of cows and sheep, and we also know that they're completely different species. 
And that's the problem with all these descriptions. They are not consistent. But what makes it all consistent is the so-called 1934 photograph, the surgeon's photo. This is the most famous photo of the Loch Ness Monster. You've all probably seen it. It's the one of the big, long head rippling in the water, and it's everything you'd think of when you think of a Loch Ness Monster, except we now know it was faked. It was a model being shot in the shallows of the loch, carefully angled so it looked bigger than it actually was. So it's a fake. It's not proof, it's not evidence, and if anybody flashes that open to you, well, that's the problem. There's also an underwater photo from the 1980s, the famous flipper photo, which could be almost anything. It could be a piece of wood, it could be a piece of sediment, it could, in theory, be a blurry version of a diver's flipper. It could be, in theory, a plesiosaur flipper, except no other evidence at that time came up. No big sonar readings or anything like that. So, in other words, the Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist. And yet, first record, 565 AD. Think of how impossibly ancient that was. 565 AD? That's before all of Britain became Christianized again. The Angles, Jutes, and Saxons had invaded England in particular and had turned it pagan. This is two centuries before the Vikings even bothered to turn up in Britain. This is an incredibly ancient time. And yet one thing we've got in common with that time is we're still fascinated with Loch Ness and what might be lurking under the surface. And that, to me, is quite reassuring in some way. There we go. I've spent more than 10 minutes talking about one, and I've got nearly half a dozen of them to, to go through with you. So let's do another watery one, shall we? And I'm going to try and do my best at pronouncing Icelandic here. I'm going to talk to you about the Lagerfjot. The Lagerfjot worm is, I think you can guess, a worm. Sort of. In the sense that it seems to be the Icelandic, and indeed some people have dubbed it this, the Icelandic Loch Ness Monster. It seems to be a large serpent-like creature, so not the same, not like a plethiosaur, more like a giant worm or snake, that lives in the various lakes of Iceland. Now, Iceland is an amazing, remarkable island and nation for so many different ways. All of its tectonic activity, the remarkable springs and so on and so forth. It's a place where you could absolutely believe that there's some sort of prehistoric monster living there. But the first reference there is still impressively old. Not as old as Nessie, but 1345? This is about the same time as the Icelandic sagas are being written down. And there is, quote, in Lagerfjot, a wonderful thing. That's it. That, that's all we've got in terms of evidence. Not specifically a monster, a beast, or anything like that. However, we fast forward about 200 years, and there is a specific map of Iceland from 1585. And it literally says, in this lake appears a large serpent. That annotation is on the map. So again, we have the same level of evidence, except something that's moving in a lake that could be a pike, that could be an eel. Some eels are like, uh, like the conger eel or moray eel can be extremely long. It's unlikely that they would be in a lake, but that would be a better description than a cryptid per se. 
maybe it's a part of a of a shark or a small porpoise or something like that. There are so many other things that it could necessarily be. There's actually some video footage. You can go onto YouTube right now. Well, to be fair, you can go onto YouTube right now and have a look at some stuff about the Loch Ness Monster as well. But there's definitely some weird footage of something moving around in the Lagerfjot Lake and it's covered with little bits of ice and something's moving through it. Now, there are lots of theories. Some people are saying that the scale is a bit unclear. Maybe it's just an otter moving through there and you're just seeing the back of the otter moving. Maybe other people are saying it could just be a loose cable in the water. That could be true as well. And of course, it could also be a cryptid serpent swirling through the ice. Except serpents are reptilian and therefore they are cold-blooded and they're not going to be moving around pack ice in the winter in Iceland. That's just not what they would do. If they could even exist in those circumstances, they would be in the bottom in some kind of hibernation or stasis in some way. The point is, it's an eerie piece of footage. And again, this plays into the pop culture side of things. What do I mean by that? We all like a mystery. One of the most popular genres of movies are horror movies. And the reason for that is we all like to be, as one person put it, fear without the threat of death equals fun. And people have fun in horror movies. You get that adrenaline jolt when you get the jump scare or the feeling of dread is then cleansed as you walk out of the movie and say how clever it was or, ooh, I knew that person was going to die or whatever, but you yourself are fundamentally safe. It's a little bit of almost make-believe or acting. And here we've got it again in the sense that there is this mystery. If I can crack the mystery, I'm smarter than everybody else. That's quite an appealing idea. Clicking on undiscovered, hidden truths, the most interesting thing, the most compelling thing you can ever say to another human being is, would you like to know a secret? Because no human being is going to turn around and say, no, I'm all right, fine, thanks. Everybody wants to know a secret, wants to be let in on the hidden knowledge. This is something that has worked through generations and across the globe when it comes to religious ceremonies, this idea that the priesthood had hidden knowledge from everybody else. There we go. That's the Lagerfjot worm, and it's been recorded for 700 years, give or take. And yet, again, that is way too long for one creature to live. So if it truly was a place where a giant serpent lived, well, back in 1345, that wonderful thing, notice singular, would have been a lake full of writhing serpent creatures and stay well away from that nightmare juice, okay? Run away, run away now. That's not a good look for the Lagerfjot worm. So again, you actually need a certain amount of creatures to pass on the generations, and there just isn't a viable amount of creatures there for breeding. It would very rapidly be to inbreeding, which would lead to weaker creatures, which would just lead to, over the centuries, a complete mess. So, sorry, another one can't give you any firm facts on. Let's move on to the next one. The next one is one that I fell down a rabbit hole. I'll be honest with you, I think we all do it at some point if we're reading history. 
there was, I'm deliberately not going to give you the names of these titles or the people involved, I don't want to get into any trouble, but it was that time where I wanted to know a bit more about World War II. And while I'd got the overall narrative, there are so many books on the topic, and there was one on the experimental aircraft of the Luftwaffe. Things like their jet-engined aircraft and indeed their rocket aircraft, and of course, the prototypes that never quite got there. I read the book, it was really interesting, and the writer was quite honest about what was a built prototype and what was just a series of drawings that never made it any further than the drawing board, quite literally. So I noticed that he'd written another one, and that one was a bit goofier. And that was about UFOs and Germans going to the moon and little green men and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, ugh, how disappointing this is now lurched into this area. But about the same time, I can't remember if he wrote it or whether it was a co-author. I'd also happened to have bought another book and it's like, okay, I'll give it a go. And it was a series of unexplained mysteries in history. Now, there are a lot of unexplained mysteries in history. But just because they are mysteries doesn't mean that there isn't a rational answer rather than aliens or hidden technology or Atlantis or something like that. I have done a whole episode on the... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Atlantis. Myth, 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 myth. All right. But what I wanted to say on this occasion is one of the things they talked about was the Mokele Mbembe. I think I've said that right. Again, I am now going from Icelandic to Congolese, which is not my natural language. So Mokele Mbembe is the local name for another cryptid. 
This is in the Congo region. It's actually in modern-day Cameroon where this happened, and this is quite recent in terms of its understanding in Europe, but quite old for the local African communities. So it is a forgotten thing that in the race for Africa, one of the lesser imperial powers, but still one that did take territory in Africa, was Imperial Germany. And the first reference we have in Europe to this creature is a German in 1913, so just before World War I, collected these stories and reported them back. Now, what's interesting about the Mokele, which is what I'm going to just call it for the time being, is the way it was discussed is they showed them various different creatures and if they'd never seen one. I'm going to say polar bear. It's highly unlikely that a Congolese person had ever seen a polar bear. I'm not saying that that was a picture or image or drawing, but the idea is there was images of real creatures that they would know well. So there might be a picture of, let's say, a lion. And then they would say, oh yeah, that's a lion in their local language. So it's already confirmed. They would show them pictures of things that they couldn't possibly have seen. Again, I'm going to make it up and just say polar bear. And these people were open and honest. They didn't turn around and say, oh yes, that is what we call the great white bear or something like that. They'd go, no idea. Never seen one of those before. Don't have a name for it. So they were open and honest about what they had and hadn't seen. But one of the images they had turned out to be what they called a Mokele Mbembe. And that is what we would call, and I can finally move off the local Congolese word, a sauropod. You know, a brontosaurus, a brachiosaurus, something like diplodocus. You know, big body, big long neck, four stompy legs, long tail at the end. You've all seen them in all of the dinosaur movies and TV shows and so on and so forth. They're quite often some of the people's favourite creatures of all time. I believe they are the largest land animals that ever existed. The largest animal that has ever existed on planet Earth is still with us. It is the blue whale. Everything else, smaller than a blue whale. So the point is, interestingly, they didn't turn around and like the polar bear and go, no idea what that is, mate. They went, oh yeah, 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 those things, they live deep in the jungle and things like that. So, according to them, it's a real thing. According to us... It's something that died 65 million years ago. And the thing about sauropods is they are so gigantic. There are new species. I, f I figure maybe I should have said this right at the beginning. I'm not denying there are unknown species out there. Indeed, there was one scientist saying, you don't need to go to rarely explored parts of the jungles of South America or Africa to find new species. You just need an electron microscope in your own back garden. Because if you zoom in far enough, there will be some single-celled life or amoebas or nematodes or tiny little worms that have never been discovered or described in science before. And hey, presto, you just found a whole new animal species. But big whoop, it's another worm. We don't need more worms. Except I will be talking about a cool cryptid worm later on. So the point here is... Yes, there are occasionally mammals that are discovered. Something of mammalian size, like the size of a cat or a dog, can still easily be discovered and completely new to us in somewhere like the Amazon basin. 
in the jungles there. Or it could be a new bird species or a new primate, but small primates, small monkeys. You get things like the bonobo that was thought to have been part of the chimpanzee and then through DNA analysis recognized actually different group and the bonobo chimp is the closest, or the bonobos I should say, yes, because they're not the chimpanzees anymore, but the bonobos are the closest related primates to Homo sapien, i.e. humans. They are, I believe, 99.5% similar in terms of DNA. And they're the ones who are the best at doing things like sign language, so on and so forth. The mountain gorilla was first properly discovered by science and given a scientific name in the very beginning of the 20th century. Prior to that, they themselves were cryptid. We knew that they existed. They'd been in various stories. They were fierce, flesh-eating, terrifying creatures. And it's taken the whole of the 20th century to explain that they are vegetarians and they are very gentle, unless you walk into the territory and start causing trouble, in which case, like any primate, they will defend their territory and family. So I'm not saying that you can't find new animals. What I am saying is a sauropod is... I'm being technical here, massive. And if you've got a whole family, a whole herd of sauropods, that's something that everybody would have spotted at some point. So what exactly these people in the Congo Basin were describing is still a bit of a mystery. Maybe it's just a large boa constrictor that, if it's draped in the water, looks like the head of something that's rising out of the water. But of course, it's all just guesswork. What we can say is, the actual sauropod family, there is no evidence. There's, there's nothing even close to have lived in recent times. We are talking about something in the actual archaeological, or I should say paleontological record, dating back millions of years. And nobody has found something from, let's say, only one million years ago. No. no not a thing. Sorry. Let us move on. So I'm now going to move on to the other super famous one that you've all been waiting for me to say, Bigfoot, or Yeti, or Abominable Snowman. And really, this is an example of what I've just been saying. This is another example of a primate that technically could possibly exist, except we just don't have the evidence. Now, what is the difference between a Bigfoot, a Sasquatch, and a Yeti, and an abominable snowman? And the answer is, depends which continent you're on. Because the name, locally, under Native Americans, in obviously America, is Sasquatch. Now, the English version is Bigfoot, because they seem to have left, according to legend, very large footprints. And then Yeti is the name for it in the Himalayas. Abominable Snowman is a British imperial invention and sounds cool, basically. Let's go to the earliest record of these. And, and what are we describing here? We're talking about a very large humanoid creature, maybe seven, eight feet tall, covered in hair, big feet. In essence, something similar to a gorilla or maybe orangutan, but living in North America, which is not where gorillas or orangutans live, or up in mountains, which again, there are such things as mountain gorillas, but they're in Africa and they're still underneath 
the tree line, in other words, they're still in forest, they're not on the top of Mount Everest because nothing can live up there. I want to briefly say again a bit of the pop culture. I haven't talked about the pop culture since Nessie, really, but here we go. With Bigfoot, again, there's been movies, there's been video games, there's been TV shows. The Perhaps the most poignant one, or, or weirdest one, is the relationship between Rockstar Games, who make the two very famous series, Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption, and the myth of the Bigfoot. When Grand Theft Auto San Andreas came out, at the time it was a milestone in sheer size of map, and there was a big forest area and a big mountain there that you could actually base jump off, etc. Never mind about that. But an urban legend appeared about how if you were in a certain part of the forest area at a certain time of day, you would see a Bigfoot. Now, this simply wasn't in the game. It was just an urban legend. Some people did some very clever digital photography to create fake images saying, look, here's the proof, there's the Bigfoot. But other smarter people went through the actual code of the game and found that there was no prompt to appear and there was no memory. In other words, there was no Bigfoot in the game ever. Even if it was a hidden item in the game, it would still have to exist in the actual data for the game, the programming. So because of that, it was a myth. And therefore, when it came to the first Red Dead Redemption game, there was again, the same myth came out. But when it came to a DLC, downloadable content, which created this kind of undead world in Red Dead Redemption, which was hugely praised by everybody, but I was the one, the few people who didn't like it. I didn't like the way it changed the actual story and the fact that your wife and son had been bitten by zombies and things like that. I, it just, it didn't work for me. It wasn't what I wanted out of a Red Dead Redemption game. I did play about three quarters of it, but in it, finally, there was a Bigfoot. And you're told about how they're monstrous and eating children. And so you go out and you hunt one down, you kill it, and then you find another one and you take that one down. And eventually you find another Bigfoot and it's crying. And it turns out it can speak English. And it explains to you that he is the last of his kind because people like you have been hunting him down mercilessly, thinking that they steal children. And yet they're just gentle giants. They're vegetarian. It's a really poignant powerful bit that makes you think about how insensitive humans are to the biospheres and diversity of planet earth in a game whose reputation is largely for violence it does show you that rockstar does actually have things to say about society and i won't bother going into how it ends because it's pretty dark there you go there's another example of pop culture how bigfoot has been turned into almost a cryptid within a series of video games but the absolute earliest that we've got is the yetis because they're in buddhist folklore but it is worth pointing out that in buddhist folklore we also have the equivalent of angels and demons and demigods flying around the planet so not the most reliable and really it's in the 19th century when we start to get sightings largely by european explorers they start seeing large footprints and things like that or alleged footprints or alleged droppings this is before DNA evidence, but they find these things. Perhaps the most compelling and interesting is there was a Buddhist temple in Nepal that claimed to have the scalp of a yeti. And in 1954, 
this very holy relic, they relinquished it to some scientists. Now, this is actually just a couple of decades before DNA testing. DNA had been discovered by 1954, but that's it. Nobody's actually found a use for it or been able to do the genome of humans or, or other things. Now, that shows you how quickly human nature and science has changed over the last century, basically, or 50 years. So they didn't know that there was going to be some DNA evidence, but they carried out other forms of tests and came to the conclusion that it wasn't a, a scalp or indeed part of a skull, but it was actually the shoulder of a hoofed animal. In other words, not something unexplainable. There's also been a finger of a yeti, which that did get a DNA test, turned out to be human. So the point is that, again, sleetings, hints, rumours, that is not enough to get it into the historical record or the natural historical record and have an official species named after you. We know that there are other types of hominids in the story of how we went from ape-like men to men-like apes to then humans. And we occasionally find one. We call it Australopithecus ramidus or something like that. There is indeed one called Australopithecus giganticus, which could indeed be considered the right size of something like a Bigfoot or Yeti, except there is no evidence that any of them have existed any more recently than a million years ago. We need the evidence before the scientists can turn around and say, yup, that's a real thing. When I did the episode that mentioned giant squids and gigantic squids, the point is that they were also cryptids until we got the evidence. But if you're going to have a big claim about a big creature, you need some actual big evidence rather than just, there's a hole in the ground that could be a footprint, or it could not be a footprint. It's too hard to tell and it doesn't prove anything. So that's what's going on in Asia. And yet in California, you get the Yokuts native peoples doing a painting of Bigfoot. And that is estimated to be about a thousand years old. So clearly they are part of Native American culture for at least a thousand years. And really the thing that, again, if you want to talk about pop culture, the thing that everybody knows when I say Bigfoot, probably you had this seared into your head, is the 1967 Patterson-Gimlin film. That is the famous one of something that looks a bit like a gorilla marching across a river, a shallow river, that then turns and looks into the camera and keeps walking. It's so powerful. As a child, I found it spooky, but it's quite a long way away. And there are two things that make this not evidence. One, huge amounts of animal experts have said, that's not what happens when an animal is startled. They don't look at the camera and then keep walking as if nothing's happened. They scamper away. This thing is kind of walking along quite similarly to the gait of an actual human in a gorilla costume. That's part one that makes it not very compelling evidence of Bigfoot. And number two, Paston and Gimlin were on the record many years later going, yeah, that's us in a gorilla costume. We set the whole thing up. This is not a conspiracy with a conspiracy where they're trying to hide the real Bigfoot. It's just, it's not a thing. And so we come to the last one, perhaps the least well-known one, although I don't know how many of you know about the Lagerfjot worm. But anyway, there is the brilliant Mongolian death worm, which beats all the other ones in terms of names. Now, this is far less well-known. It's not something that you tend to get in a lot of pop culture, although I will come to how pop culture affected the search for it in a bit. 
This seems to be a misreading of an actual creature called the Tartar Sand Boa. This is a boa constrictor type snake, very large snake, that can be found in the Eurasian steppe where Mongolia settles as well as most of Central Asia, and this creature, this snake, does indeed live in that area. However, that's not the same quite as the Mongolian deathworm. This first came to the attention to the West by the paleontologist Roy Chapman Andrews, who in 1926 published a book called On the Trail of Ancient Man. Now, Roy Chapman Andrews is a doctor of paleontology. He's a respected paleontologist. And what he said was he found it very interesting that the description of the Mongolian deathworm was consistent. It wasn't like Loch Ness, where in the case of the Mongolians, you go from area to area and you get a completely different view on what they are. They were very consistent on what a Mongolian deathworm looked like. Thing is, it did look quite different to a Tartar sand boa. But the critical thing was, we can argue about size, and that's obviously a bit subjective in this situation, depends how far away you are. That's not going to be the killer thing. The really big issue is the Mongolian deathworm doesn't constrict. What it does is it either sprays venom or it kills things with electricity. Now, obviously, there is the spitting cobra that does spray venom on creatures, but that's not a constrictor. And you do get something like electric eels, which do indeed carry a natural electric charge which shocks fish and brings them down. Except that's an eel, not a worm. It's always in water, and electricity travels very well through water, and is just not a thing that's been seen in any other land-based creature. And again, there is no actual evidence. There is no body of a Mongolian deathworm which is why, again, we are talking about a cryptid. I said earlier I'd come back to some pop culture, and it comes back in a very strange way with the Mongolian deathworm. And that's because it allegedly is an ambush predator, lurking underneath the soil, jumping out and either spraying its poison or its electricity. And so in the 1990s, a group who had clearly watched more sci-fi and read more sci-fi than were in any way reputable natural historians, decided that they were going to attract them by banging, pounding rhythmically, sometimes even setting off small explosives to lure the Mongolian deathworms to the surface. If this sounds familiar, that's what they do in June. You know, Frank Herbert's June. The movie and book set on a different planet thousands of years in the future. Yeah, that's not how you do science. I am going to wrap things up here. I'm just going to turn around as always and say, guys, let me know what you think. Have you got a favorite cryptid that you want to share with me? I'm at Gem Deducha on Twitter, X, whatever Musk wants to call it, etc. Please do retweet, repost, whatever it's called. I put out, this is today's episode, blah, blah, blah. And I usually put a cool little gif on the bottom of it. Please help us spread the word. It would be great. But the world of cryptids as a whole is just a really interesting one. Because what it does is it reflects our own fascination of the unknown, of the mysterious. How we all basically feel that science only gets us so far. And as I said earlier, everybody likes to be in on a secret. Thanks for listening. And as always, another episode coming soon.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.